You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara in St. Catharines, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestniagara.ca. Psalm 19, we're going to continue this morning with our uh, series called Without Apology, really studying the doctrine of the Word of God. And this morning we're going to focus on simply one truth, why I can have utmost confidence in this book and stake my life on its contents. It's not just a good book we have in our hands, it's the perfect book. It's not just a book, it's the book. We studied that last week. This is the inerrant word of God. This is the very words of God. But the question that surrounds us in our country, in our day and age, is this. And you've heard it many times. Maybe you even struggle with this this morning as you come into church. But if, if you're a believer, you've heard this many times. You've tried to share Jesus Christ with others. It's this question. But can I really trust that the word of God is true and reliable? Ever hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good about Jesus on you. But how do you know that the word of God is true? How do we know that this book is authentic and real? These are valid questions that we as believers can't just skip by, that we have to wrestle through in our own hearts and even have ready to give defense for why we believe what we believe. And you take this message of Jesus and the gospel and the Bible being God's word out into the world, you'll find three prominent beliefs in the world around you. The first one is this. Most people dismiss this book as simply an interesting story. None of it is true because there's so many stories in here that are just completely unbelievable. Noah's Ark, for real. David and Goliath, like the sun standing still for a whole day. Like This is like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Give me a break. Most people can't deny there's some history, but the storyline, they say, is all completely made up. It's like ancient Greek mythology. Too far and too outrageous for people to believe. Some of you might be there. Some of you might try to telling people about Christ and coming up with that question, what do you say? We're going to get to that. Most today would say, if it's not just a story, it's completely outdated. This is like a museum artifact, fella. It's lost all of its relevance. Get with 2016. This book was written thousands of years ago. It's good for cavemen, but wait, we don't don't need that stuff anymore. We don't need God. Science has things figured out, and man is doing a pretty darn good job of figuring it out in ourselves. And so they dismiss the word of God as way outdated. Others just completely say it's contradictory, and so uh, the Bible is about as reliable as the Prime Minister's promises. So full of errors and discrepancies that we can have no confidence in anything it says, and we should just throw the whole thing out. And yet as we study the Word of God, the Word of God is a completely different picture for us than that. The Word of God actually says, as we're going to read here in Psalm 19, that this is a true book. It is the perfect book. It is the word of God he has given us that we might know him and we might live for him in this life. And so let's look at Psalm 19 verses 7 to 11 together. And we're just going to unpack part of this today because I, as I started studying this, I realized there's so much in here that I can't just fit into like 40 minutes of a sermon. So we're going to hit part two next week. But the part one I just want to hit this week is simply this. It is, this is the perfect word of God in which you can place your complete confidence in without any questions. Listen to what it says in Psalm 19. Look at just above the little numbers 19 there. It says this, the law of the Lord is? It's perfect. Look at verse 7. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, is this book, than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by this book, is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Number one, I want you to write down in your notes if you're taking notes today. If you're not, I encourage you to, just so you... um, Remember this and can look at it again at home this week. Is Number one is this. The Bible is absolute truth. The Bible is absolute truth. If you look at these six words that is used in this text to describe the Bible, it is really describing one thing that this word is the absolute standard for truth. When you open up this book, you can be 100% sure every time that what you read is true. And you can not only accept it, but you can live your life and base your whole life upon it without apology. So excited was David to communicate these truths to us that he actually wrote a song. This is a song singing of the glory and the wonder of the Word of God. So much does David love the truth of the Word of God. He's singing it. He's like, man, this is so good. I can't keep it in. This word is, look at the words to describe. This word is perfect. Verse 7. This word is sure. This word is right. This word is pure, this word is clean, and this word is true. And let's be honest, live long enough in this world and you realize that really nothing is for certain. Nothing seems true. Everything seems up in the air. But according to the word of God, there is an absolute truth in this world. It's not relative. Truth is not relative. Truth is not up to you or I. Truth is not subjective. Truth is found in this one book called the Bible, called the word of God. I'm not saying this assuming that we all get this this morning. Because so many people even grow up in the church and they're like, really? The Bible is the word of God? We kind of covered that last week a little bit. And we come into church kind of wishy-washy. Is the Bible the word of God? Is it not? Well, I'll listen to what the pastor says and maybe I'll take what he says, but maybe not. Maybe I'll listen to what the word of God says, but we can be sure this morning, this is 100%. Everything we find in here is the word of God. It is true. For your life and my life, whether we like it or whether we don't like it, this is truth. Look at how the Word of God describes itself here. Here's what the Word of God is. You can write these things down as I go. Right out of the text here, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's the perfect law. The Word of God is a perfect law. When we think of law, I know what you're thinking already. Like, really? You're, you're com- You're comparing the word of God to law. Like law is so boring and law is so restrictive. When we think of law, we think of like reading the Ontario Workplace Safety Code or something. And we're like, man, all that is for is to find loopholes. Right, Charles? Is Charles here today? There he is. (laughs) Mr. Inspector. But in fact, this isn't referring to that type of law. This is referring to the Torah In a limited sense, the Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But in a broad sense, it's referring to the whole whole Old Testament, to the whole teachings of God that simply do this. The teachings of God simply do this. They make plain to us 
who God is and the reality that we are all, in fact, sinners who cannot save ourselves and need a Savior. This is what God's law is designed to do, to show us how desperately we need God. And we realize that it gives us life and it gives us joy. This law of God, get this, is perfect. We don't get perfect because none of us are that and, and no one else around us is that. But this is perfect. It's bang on every single time. In other words, in a thousand words that God speaks, he hits the moral bullseye 1,000 times. Everything is truth. It's complete. It's lacking nothing. It's without error. This is the word of God. It is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It goes on to say this in the second half of this verse. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Are you reading this with me just so you don't think I'm making it up this morning? The testimony of the Lord is what? It's sure. It's sure. just want to make sure you're with me. In other words, when God's word takes the witness stand, you never have to wonder if he's telling the truth or fudging the truth or trying to cover up his own behind. The word of God will pass the lie detector test every single time with ease. When things are uttered, when the testimonies are uttered from God's lips as found in his word, you never have to ask this question when you're done. Is this really true? You can be sure You can be sure, as sure as the sun comes up every morning and as sure as the sun goes down every night, as sure as there's going to be happiness and sadness in this world, we can be confident in God's word. Goes on to say this, describing the word of God, the precepts of the Lord are right. The precepts or the statutes of the Lord. This is referring to the particular uh, law listed in the whole law. In other words, the, the, the main laws and then the subpoints of the main laws. Even the little things of the word of God are true. So many think today that, oh, as long as you get the big things square, the little things really don't matter. But this is telling us that's not true. The law of the Lord is so perfect and right that every little, as Jesus says, every little iota and every little dot is absolutely true and correct. There's nothing incorrect about it. In other words, it's not just the big road signs of God's word that you need to pay attention to. It's all the little markers along the way that will point you in the right direction. And get this, it's correct. It'll always point you in the correct direction. God's word will never lead you astray or down a rabbit trail that you don't know where it ends. Next one is this, it's pure commandments. The commandments of the Lord are pure Here's the word commandments that we all hate, right? But they're also good for us. What are commandments? It's simply this. The directions that God gives meant as a rule of action or conduct. The thus says the Lord, all the commandments of God are pure. Yes, God gives us commandments. And he is in a rightful place to give us commandments. Just like a CEO or an army general has the position and the right to set policy and throw out orders so God has that authority in the world. You don't have to give it to him. He already has it. But you can be sure when he gives you a commandment, it is going to be pure. In other words, every one of God's commands is without defilement. There's no evil there. There's no ill intention there. It's all 100% pure. And it's good and right and necessary for your lives. When you think pure, you think pure water. I just spent uh, almost a week in Haiti, and I tell you, there's nothing pure about their water there. When you wash your hands under the top, you're getting chunks of who knows what in your water. It's completely gross. That's not God's word. Even when you turn on the tap here, you realize that it looks clean and pure, but you know what? There's chemicals in there, and it's contaminated with chemicals. We know that, right? That's why we all spend so much money on bottled water. 
And even the water that we know is good for us and necessary, it also does us some harm. But that, that's not like the word of God either. Not looking pure, but not pure. The word of God is like a natural spring that is 100% completely pure. Without chemicals or contamination, it's not just healthy for us. It's a necessity for us, just like water is. goes on to say the word of God is a clean word. See that in the next part of this? Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's a clean word as opposed to dirty. Makes, us, makes our hearts, our lives sparkle like the sun and cleanses us from the dirty grime of sin and evil. And when your heart's cleansed by the purity of the word of God, here's what happens. Your life will overflow with a reverence and a holy fear of God and, and, and a moral goodness will ooze from your life and a right life will come out. And when God's word washes over you and purifies your soul, it will give you a clean heart and a clear view of God and a deep reverence from him. A, a fear of God is always associated with the word of God. In other words, we get into the word of God and we see God so clear that we can't help but have a holy respect and awe of God. That's what God's word does for us and in us. And the last one is this. God's word is the true rules of a good father. Yes, it's true. Our father has house rules. We don't like this part of God because we think we should be able to do whatever we want, when we want, how we want. But yet God is a good father who loves us enough to give us house rules to protect us and to govern us and to watch over us. And we can be sure when we see the rules of God, it's not a swear word, rules, it's a good word, to guide us. When we see the rules of God, we know that they are given to us by God to govern our lives in everything that is right and good and perfectly in line with who God is. And in God, all you find is truth. You just find truth in God. You can look all you want for falsehood. You won't be able to find it. All you find in God is true. He is morally right in every way. It says in Titus 1, 2, that God never lies. In fact, it says in Hebrews 6, 18, that God is actually incapable of lying. Lying comes easy to us. God simply can't do it. And so when we come to this book, we simply find one truth that is affirmed from Genesis right through to Revelation. You know what that truth is? Is that this book is truth. And we can trust it. And we don't have to second guess God's rules. We don't have to go and push all the boundaries of God's, God's book to only come back to find out he was right after all. Man, did I make a mess of my life. How many times have we done that and watched other people do that? And yet we can come back to every time that this is true. Look at, look at how the word of God is described here in every single instance of every six word. It says the law of who? The Lord. The testimony of? The precepts of? You getting this? It's, it's of the Lord. He keeps bringing it back. This is, like we talked last week, if you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. This is the word of God. We don't have to wonder. It is the word of God. It's the word of Jehovah. The proper name of God showing us the completeness of the word of God is, is a word is only as good as who gives it and God gives this word. And it's true. It's in accordance with fact and reality as the dictionary would describe true. And we can know this stuff. We can get this theology, but how many of us truly really buy into this and grab a hold of this? How many of us walk through life with a skepticism when it even comes to the word of God. It seems to be ingrained in us, doesn't it? And even in our culture, we're taught from a young age in school, everything's, you, you test everything, you're kind of like one eyebrow up for everything. And you're skeptical, and we live in a world that skepticism is bred around us. We have people calling us all the time, trying to sell us on the deal of a lifetime. We're like, whatever. 
When we read stuff on the internet, I hope you're here. When we read stuff on the internet now, we're like, I doubt it. Some of you aren't there, you should be there. <laughs> Some of you still think that story from Montreal a few years ago where that eagle came down and swooped the kid out of the park. Remember that? And I was like, oh, wow, look at that. You still believe that's true. It's not true. But we're so skeptical. And then we live our lives with this skepticism even when it comes to the word of God and we can't figure out why there's no power of God in me, why, why the, the Christian life isn't as vibrant as it seems like everybody else's is and, and what's missing is really simply what's missing is faith in the fullness of the reality of the word of God. That's what's missing in so many lives today in the church. That's what's missing in so many churches today. Why is God not moving? Because we've lost the wonder and the awe of just simply the simplicity, the power of the word of God. When the Bible says that God's word is true, it simply means this. It's without error. Here's the doctrine I'm trying to teach you without using big theological terms today. Here's the doctrine I'm trying to teach you. It's a doctrine of inerrancy. That's the one theological term I will tell you today. It's a doctrine of inerrancy. Wayne Grudem defines inerrancy as this. It means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. And so in other words, what this simply means for us is this, when we hold this book in our hands, when we dig it off of our shelves, which I hope you do constantly, I hope it's not on the shelf for very long, and we open it up, we can be 100% confident that this is God's word, amen? And then we can live this word without apology. We don't have to be shy of this word. We don't have to like hold our heads low when it comes to the word of God. We can speak the word of God. We can live the word of God with confidence, without apology, because we know that it's 100% absolutely from God and true, regardless of what anyone else says. I told you last week, the Bible affirms that over and over and over. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And yet it's not just the word of God. It's not just the word of God that affirms all the things I'm telling you today. So many people that I've come across would say, of course, you say the Bible says that, but that's a circular argument. You can't appeal to who says it because who knows if they're lying or not. You have to have outside sources to affirm the Bible. You heard that argument before? Well, I don't believe it just because it says it. I want to know, I want to know, I want other proof. I want other proof. And even some Christians, even here today, think that all there is to the, the, the validity of the word of God is what the Bible says. And yet God has gone to such great lengths to give us so much more than that. Talked a little bit about it last week, but I want to hit on some things more this week. It's more, I'm going to do a different type of sermon today. I know you guys like the, like, here's what the text says. And, and we just stay in the text and we study the words. That's how we usually do sermons here. But I'm going to kind of go outside of that today. I'm going to give you an apologetics course today, okay? You know what apologetics is? Americans think, Canadians think apologetics is saying sorry. Sorry, because we're so shy and, and nice and polite. It's not apologetics. Apologetics is, is knowing what you believe and why you believe it and having some validity to your faith. And so uh, just to help build the argument for this being true, I'm going to give you seven reasons of how we can know the validity of the Bible. And it, I want you to know this. It's proven not just internally, but it's proven externally as well. It's not just proven internally. It's proven externally. So many times I hear pastors telling their people, you just got to believe, you just got to believe. And then people are starving, going like, why do I believe? Why? Come on, give me more, give me more. I'm going to give you more today, okay? Not just what to believe, but here's why you believe it. 
Obviously, it starts in the Word of God, but it goes so much further. Here's seven, here's seven uh, external evidences to the fact of why we believe what we believe and why we're so excited about the Word of God, why we love the Word of God, why we open this book every time we meet, and we will open this book every time we meet until the day that this church ceases to exist, I pray. Here's the first reason from outside scriptures of how we know that the law of the Lord is perfect, how we know that the testimony of the Lord is sure, how we know that the precepts, precepts of the Lord are right, how we know that the commandments of the Lord are pure, how we know that the fear of the Lord is clean and the rules of the Lord are true. First one is this, it's the manuscript evidence. You can write these down. Even encourage you to do some further research on these things at home. I don't have time to spell it all out for you, but it's fascinating stuff that I'll... Take your faith from simply belief to conviction. That's what we're going for here. We just don't want to believe this superficially. We want to be convinced and convicted of these things. The first one is this, uh, manuscript evidence. What I mean by that is simply this. There are way more copies of biblical manuscripts with with remarkable consistency between them than there are for any other classics on the earth. There's more evidence for Jesus and the Bible than there is for Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And yet we take those guys as, well, those guys are for sure, for real. Jesus? No, nah, I don't think so. Even by secular standards, I'm not talking Christian standards, I'm talking secular standards. Here's the proof, here's how they proof, come up with proof to see if the text is real or not. They go by two criteria. Number one is this, the time interval between the original and the earliest copy. In other words, if I were to write something today and 50 years from now they find a copy of that and they find like uh, another copy of that 20 years later, another copy of that 50 years later, there's probably pretty good proof that I actually existed and wrote that. If, however, I write something today and they find another copy like 1,500 years from now, they're going to be like, well, I'm not so sure that's true. There's a lot of time gaps there, right? So that's the first one, time gap. Second one is this, is how many manuscripts are available? which makes sense. I write something now, and then 50 years from now, you find 17 copies of the same thing. You're like, well, that's pretty overwhelming evidence from all these different sources. But on the other hand, if you find like 1,500 years from now, and you find like one copy saying, yeah, that was true, you'd be like, I doubt it, right? Give me more, give me more. Well, do you realize that with that criteria alone, the Bible stands alone compared to every other piece of literature on this green earth? Listen to this. Plato who are all like, oh yeah, Plato, yeah, yeah. They teach him in school all the time. Plato, we know Plato. Not Plato's in the stuff you play with, Plato. <laughs> so I want to clarify. 400 BC, the earliest, was 400 BC, the earliest copy was found in 980, 1300 years after the guy existed. And we have seven copies of that to verify that it's real. And I say Plato in the world, everyone's like, oh yeah, for sure. Homer's Iliad, the, 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 the literature that comes closest to the Bible, there's a 400-year time gap between when first was written and then when the next copy was found. We have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. You're like, that's a little more convincing than Plato, don't you think? Don't you think? And yet, get this, when it comes to the New Testament, get this. There's only like a 50 to 100-year time gap between the original and the copy, and we have almost 25,000 different copies of manuscripts at our disposal. That's overwhelming evidence that what I'm talking about is not just some guy's idea. It's not, well, I hope so. This is the word of God. Manuscript evidence. Number two is archaeological evidence. 
Do you realize this, that to this very hour, there's people digging overseas and they're not Christians digging. They're digging because they like to dig in the dirt, I guess, and find stuff. But they're digging and the more they dig, the more they confirm the Bible and over and over archaeological discoveries have discovered the accuracy of the history and the cultural references of the Bible in astronomical terms. Take this for example. At one point, theologians argued Moses could not have written the Pentateuch. He could not have written it because, because writing wasn't even in existence till then at that point. And then they found this thing called the Black Steel, and it actually proved that you know, the Black Steel was from uh, 1700 to 1900 BC. And they found that writing actually predated Moses by at least three centuries. David, another guy that they were like, yeah, David didn't exist. He's the shepherd king. He's just a myth. 1993, they find this tablet referring to the house of David from 9th century BC. And everyone's like, he doesn't, maybe he did exist. Just in 2014, if you check out biblicalarchaeology.org in 2014, they found a, a tablet, a Babylonian tablet from 1900 to 1700 BC with the account of the flood as translated by a British museum scholar, Irving Finkel. Constantly, constantly new evidence to the point of Time Magazine even saying that even scholars today can't refute that the New Testament was historically reliable. Number three is this, eyewitness accounts. The Bible was written by people who witnessed the events it describes. Here's this one. How do you know you weren't there? Correct. All right, you get it. You got me. I wasn't there. But I got writings of somebody who was. Take that. Do you realize that the Writings of the New Testament were all mostly people who had been with Jesus. Take, for example, Matthew and Mark and John and James, Jesus' brother, who, like, before the resurrection, was like, I don't know, man, he's a little sketchy. After the resurrection, like, he's for sure, I'm going to write a book. Peter, they all had front row seats to Jesus Christ. And every one of the disciples who witnessed it was persecuted and went to their death, except for John, he died of old age, which we all hope to. Every one of them, not just witnessed it, but was willing to go to their death for this overwhelmingly, overwhelming evidence that this is true. If, if it's a made-up story, but before you die, you're thinking like, ah, change my mind, just kidding. None of them did that. John Calvin said this, it's no moderate approbation of Scripture that has been sealed by the blood of so many witnesses, especially when we reflect that they died to render the testimony of faith with a firm and constant yet sober zeal towards God. You can't dismiss the eyewitness accounts that we hold in our hands today. We talked to you last week how we got them. Awesome. Fourth one is this, the external writings. Did you know this? That there are so many references from non-biblical sources to the events described in the Bible that if you could piece together the whole New Testament from Matthew to Genesis, word for word, by external sources, not even by looking at the Bible. Josh McDowell, the Christian apologist, says this, in all of history, the Bible is the most widely referenced and quoted books. New Testament alone is so extensively quoted in the ancient manuscripts of non-biblical authors that all 27 books from Matthew through Revelation could be reconstructed virtually word for word from those sources. Perfect. Sure. Right. Pure. Clean. True. Here's another one, the literary consistency. 
How many books are in the Bible? 66. 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in three different languages, in three different continents, and yet they all have one truth woven throughout the whole thing, that God is a God of love who is going to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, that you might have a relationship with God and hope in heaven forever. Forty different authors, from fishermen to shepherds to a doctor to kings on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, in three different languages, in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, covering all kinds of topics, some, some songs like we're reading right now, some stories, controversial topics, but all with the same point. God is a God of love who is going to send his son. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels show us what Jesus was like when he came and how he lived. And the New Testament after the Gospels show us how to live in light of Jesus, waiting for his return. And none of these authors knew each other. They lived in different eras in a different time. Surely you'd find some inconsistencies. I know a few policemen who would tell me one of the hardest things to do is to reconstruct a traffic accident. You know why? Because there's five different witnesses. They all have a different story. And you're like, were you guys all watching the same thing? Yeah, but I was standing over here and I was standing over there and I was in the car and I was over here. And they're like, it's just like it makes your mind, it makes your mind spin. 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, and yet they all have one unifying theme. God did not want us to miss what the Bible was and is. Number six is one of my favorites. is prophetic fulfillment. Prophetic fulfillment. In other words, the prophecies of the Old Testament that have come true in the New Testament that are for sure and real and that are going to come true in the future. This is one of the great evidences of the Bible being exactly what it says it is. Did you re- do you realize there are about 60 major specific Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? 60 prophecies with over 270 ramifications. In other words, like here's the main thing, all these little side spins of it coming true in Jesus Christ. One commentator says this, the very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament scripture should be enough to convince anyone that we're dealing with a supernatural piece of literature. Get this, get this. In one day, Jesus fulfilled 29 prophecies of the Old Testament that were said hundreds of years before he ever lived. God was so determined that, hey, If you miss Jesus, you miss life. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that when he shows up, when he shows up in the world, that people aren't scratching their head going, is this really, is is this the, is this the, I'm not sure. It looks like him. It kind of walks like him and talks like him, but I'm not quite sure if this is, God's like, I'm not, you're not going to miss this. I need to describe him in intimate detail. So when he shows up, you can't miss him. And so in one day, Jesus, the day he died, fulfilled 29 different prophecies of the Old Testament about what Jesus was going to look like and say and do not physically look like, but what his life was going to depict. Listen to some of them. Psalm 41.9 says that Jesus was going to be betrayed by a friend, which is confirmed in Matthew 26.49. Zechariah 11.13 tells us he wasn't just going to be betrayed, he was going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's pretty precise, don't you think? Not 31. Not 29, but 30. Guess what it says in Matthew 27, 5, that Jesus would be betrayed by how many pieces of silver? Coincidence? Zechariah 13, 7, he was going to be deserted by his disciples, confirmed in Mark 14, 50. And how do we know it's going to be him? Like, every one of his friends is going to run away. 
How many? All of them. Not, not what? Confirmed. Isaiah 53, 7 and Matthew 27, 12 say that Jesus is going to stand silent before his accusers. I don't know anyone who'd be silent being marched to their untimely, unjustified death. Who's going to remain silent? Not this kid. We can't keep our mouths shut. You get that, right? It's not just me. You can't either. It's not just pastors that can't keep their mouths shut. Other people can't either. He's, going to be, he's not going to say a word. What did Jesus do on the march to the cross? What did he say? Nothing. Matthew 27, 12 says us that. He says he's going to be executed among sinners in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Confirmed in Matthew 27, verse 38. He's not just going to be killed. He's not going to be beaten up. He's going to be, he's going to be executed between sinners on crosses. Psalm twenty two sixteen tells us his hands and his feet are going to be pierced, which Luke the doctor confirms for us in Luke 23, He's not just going to get beaten up. He's actually going to put nails right through his hands. He's going to put nails right through his feet. Scriptures tell us that his bones would be unbroken, his side would be pierced, that get this darkness would cover the land at midday. Like in the middle of the day, it's all of a sudden the, the lights are going to go out. Like that, that's going to be a pretty clear sign that this is Jesus. The lights are going to go out, and we know that happened. He was going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, and get this, he was going to die 483 years after the declaration of Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple in 444 B.C. So 483 years after this happens, here's when he's going to come. Do you think God wants us to miss Jesus? Clearly not. Of course, we know that the scriptures tell us on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven and sit at God's right hand. Just to help you understand how significant this is, this isn't a minor little thing, I'm telling you. This is significant. Do you realize the chances of just eight of these things coming true in one person? You know what the chances of that are? It's not like one in two. It's one in ten to the power of 17. That's the probability. Like one in 10 with a little 17 above, which is not 10 times 17, a 10 with 17 zeros on the end. That's a chance of eight of these things coming true in one person. If you don't know math, that's pretty slim. That's pretty slim. It'd be, it'd be like us rounding up all the loonies we could find, rounding them up, taking them to Alberta, filling the whole province of Alberta with two foot, two feet high of loonies, taking one, putting a red X on it, flying over Alberta, dropping it, me picking up, who should I pick up here? Kevin, taking him to the border of Alberta, Saskatchewan, blindfolding him, spinning him 10 times and say, Kevin, go at it. Now pick up the loony with the X on your first try. We'd be snickering all the way home. Hoping he didn't pick one up soon just so we could laugh a little longer. That's the chances of Jesus Christ fulfilling just eight of these prophecies and yet 29 on one day. This is overwhelming evidence that what we're reading today here, brothers and sisters, is, is not some guy's opinion. It's, it's not just another book. This is the word of God. Finish that off with this that this book has influenced more people than any other book in history combined. The Bible has had greater influence on the laws and the arts and the ethics and music and literature of the world and civilization more than any other book in history. Can you think of one that even comes close? There's no way. 
Craig Bloomberg says in his book, Christian Apologetics, that the Bible is responsible for a disproportionately large number of the humanitarian advances in the history of civilization, education, medicine, law, the fine arts, working for human rights, and even in the natural sciences. It's a life changer. It's turned society upside down. It's not just changed society, it's changed individual lives completely by the power of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit applies it to different people's hearts. If you're a believer here today, you are here today not because you're smart, not because you made all the right choices, but because you found Jesus, how? Through the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He's completely, radically changed your life forever. Amen? That's worth an amen. That's why I stand here today. I'm not particularly smart. I'm not as good as you guys think I am because it looks like I am all at the front standing here preaching. I, I am just like you and, and more than content walking my own direction and more than happy to play in my own sin. And if it was up to me, I'd still be in my own sin loving it. And yet, yet I was encountered by the word of God and encountered Jesus through the word of God. And, and yeah, I'm not, ne- not yet even close to perfect. Man, I'm a whole lot different than I was way back in 20 years ago when, I found, when Christ found me. I think differently, I process differently, I see things differently, I act differently, all because the word of God has changed me. This is the testimony of the people in our church. You see people here, we're not good people by nature. We're good people because Jesus Christ has changed our hearts through the word of God. And he's continually making us brand new. How? Through the word of God. That's the testimony of every one of our elders. That's the testimony of all of our staff. And every person in our church is a saved believer in Jesus Christ. It's testimony of Roger and Terry Lee who sit up here every Sunday and, and you see them worshiping their hearts out and, and you're asking what their life was like 15 years ago and Roger will tell you, I was a cocaine addict. My life was spinning out of control. My marriage was falling apart. I was making a mess and I was going to be dead in the next three years if something didn't happen. Terry Lee would tell you that it wasn't just the fact that she, is, she didn't believe in God. She was a, angry against God, rebellious against God, turned her back against God, like, don't come near me, God. And yet... Both of them encountered the word of God, Jesus Christ, the word of God. And guess what's happened in their lives? A radical change. Now we see, instead of Roger messing up his life, we see him worshiping at the front of the church, playing his guitar, hands raised to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now we get to pray with Tara Lee in staff meetings and see the tears welling up in her eyes with a love for the Lord and desire to honor God with her life and to see lives change the way hers has been. How can you account for that stuff? No books do that. Let's be honest. Self-help books don't work. We've all tried them. They don't work. Because you can't change your own heart. Only God can through the word of God and Jesus Christ. Seven reasons beyond what this book says. Because I know many of you are going to, I know many of you are thinking, well, I believe it, but I don't know why I believe it. I know you're going to go out of here and try telling other people about Jesus Christ and they're going to have questions. Like, I don't know what to say to that. Here's seven reasons why beyond the scriptures, why we believe that this is actually the word of God, that this book is true. And that when you pick it up, you don't have to debate with your friend about what it really means. You don't have to second guess. You don't have to put it back on the shelf and decide I'm going to do it my way anyways. You can know for sure that that this is exactly what God wants for you when right now. 2 Samuel 7, 28 says this, you are God and your words are true. 
John 17, your word, Jesus says, your word is truth, O God. Jesus says this, your word is truth. Not just a little bit of truth in there, not just a spattering of truth, but your word is truth. It's a standard for truth. It's absolute truth. And it's what we have to go on in this life. Without the word of God, we wander aimlessly trying to figure God out, making God who we think he is, what we think he ought to be. But the word of God keeps us grounded in who God really is and how we truly ought to live life. And I know time is up, and that's why we're debating, we're moving this into two sections. And I'm going to hit the application next week. And so we see all these things here. The law of the Lord is perfect, and we skipped over the reviving of the soul. We skipped over making wise the simple and rejoicing the heart and enlightening the eyes and enduring forever and altogether righteous, more desired than gold and honey and there's warning and there's blessing. We're going to get into that application part next week. But I just really was impressed with my heart. We, we have to, to, in today's day and age of like, get rid of the Bible, nothing's true. We have to first get this in our own hearts and in the hearts of our church that this is the word of God. And so next week we'll apply it, but I want to leave you with this this week as, part, as far as application goes. Just a quick point today. It's simply this. If this is truly the word of God, then you know what? You and I can't miss it. We just can't miss it. We can't flippantly treat this book any longer. We can't devote ourselves to everything but the word of God any longer. If this is truly exactly what it says is that this ought to be the most important book in our lives. Because either this book is completely true or it's completely false. Either this pas- the passage that we're reading today is all true or none of it is. There's no halfway in between with it. We can't sit on the fence with God's word. And I'm praying to that God's truth will just compel me to get into it, that we'll understand the inerrancy of the word of God, and we'll just be sitting here today stirred like, man, I just need to get into this book. I need to know this book. I need to, I need to live my life in this book, by this book, like never before. I know when I first realize the truth of God's word. Like, I wasn't a reader. I watched the movie. I told you, I used to watch the movie and do the English test from the movie, not the book, because the books were boring. And yet, and yet, and yet when, when I realized the truth of the word of God, it was like, I can't stop. Like, I just need to know. I need to devour. I, if this is true, then I have to know. And so I encourage you with two things here, just as you leave today, to take away this from this message with a deeper resolve to two things, explore it and engage your mind in the word of God, to explore the word of God, to make this week and this month and this year and this life revolve around one thing in your life, the word of God. I pray that this would be something that stirs you up to want to know the word of God, not just superficially put on the snorkel and the goggles and skim over the top, but to get on the scuba suit and dive deep in the treasures of God's word. How do you do this? You do this two ways. You explore it two ways, prayerfully and carefully. You get into it prayerfully and carefully. We see in the scriptures that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to understand what you're reading. You're not going to see all that God wants you to see unless God illuminates your eyes to see it and confirms his reality in his word. 
And so as you study the word of God this week, I want you to start with this. God, please confirm and validate the word of God in my life and show me today what you want me to know about yourself and about myself and about my life through your word. God, today as I get into your word, would you remove the veil from my eyes, the cloud from my mind, and the closed sign from my heart that I might be fully open to what you want for me through your word. Pray that God will give you a desire for his word. I can't understand how we can be Christians and not desires of the word of God. It's incompatible. It's like, it's like being a fish and not being in the water. Where the Holy Spirit abides, he's going to creating you a desire to get into the Word of God. So prayerfully get into the Word of God and then carefully get into the Word of God. And what I mean by carefully is, is don't take anything flippantly in the Word of God. Take care and concern and caution as you read the Word of God. It's not a superficial glance. We want to know Christ and know Christ fully through His Word. And so as you come across things you don't understand, don't just sit on the shelf and say, I don't understand that. I guess I can't know that. Seek out other believers to help you get commentaries out of men who've spent their lives studying this and seek to know God through his word. This is the greatest book you will ever know because it leads you to God and a fullness of life in Jesus. And as you carefully read it, I want to encourage you that with this, you don't just need to know portions of this. I said it last week, I'll say it again. It's not just the red letters you need to know. It's not just the New Testament you need to know. You need to know the whole book. The whole book is of God. I'm astounded. I'm astounded at how we have the very truth. Like, I am holding right now the very words of God. And yet people from other religions and other beliefs know their quote-unquote scriptures better than we know ours. That ought not to be so. That just ought not to be so. We, we ought to love this book and live in this book and know this book. There ought to be a story we don't want to hear. There ought to be a, a picture of God we don't want to, we, we want to see them all. There's not a command we don't want to know because we want to live with God in this life. I encourage you to prayerfully and carefully and fully know the word of God and then simply this, explore it, then engage. Engage in it. Engage your mind and your heart in God's word. If this book truly is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, and if this book really connects us with Jesus and the life, spiritual life that's found in Christ, then we ought to love this book more than we love our spouses, more than we love our kids and our jobs. I'm not talking about bibliolatry, as some people say now, but, but we know God through the book, Right? So if we love God, we love the book. It's not so we just know a book and a set of intellectual ideas. It's we love God, we love the book. And so I encourage you to engage your heart in it and to put your all into the word of God. To put your all into what God says. And to not just hold close, but to hold up the word of God without apology and to hold out the word of God without apology in an age of skepticism and unbelief. It's called the Christian faith for sure. And it takes faith to believe. But it's not a blind faith where we come and jump off a cliff and hope for the best. God has gone out of his way to affirm and confirm everything that the Bible is that we could come together every single Sunday and study the word of God. 
that you can open it up every single day at your home and know that this is the word of God. You can have conversations with people and not waver and doubt. I don't know. I'm not sure. We can know that this is the word of God. It's where the life of a church is found. That's why I'm preaching this series. It's where the life of a church, we, we stray from this. We've, we've missed it all. We can have everything in this church. We miss the word of God. We won't become a social club. And we don't want to be a country club here. We want to be a people who see the power of God in and through our lives. We miss this in our families, and we miss out on God's full intention of what the family's supposed to be. And we're just like everybody else in this, on this earth, and we just go through life saying, I believe in a certain things, but I miss out on the fullness of God through his word. We miss this in our lives, and guess what? We can physically live this year, but we won't spiritually live this year. At best, we'll spiritually crawl this year instead of spiritually run this year. And so the word of God becomes paramount in everything we say, everything we think, and everything we do for the glory of God. Let me pray. God, how awesome is your word. How enlightening and life-giving is your word. God, this is exciting. I can see why David's singing songs about this. God, I pray that you stir up every heart here, not just to know these truths, but to, to be rejoicing over the truth of the word of God, that we can, we can walk through life knowing we have your very words in our hands. God, I pray that we'd be singing songs about this, that we'd be, we'd be holding on to this, we'd be studying this, we'd be living our lives through your word as we connect with you. God, I pray you'd help us know the vast significance of the Bible, not just in our church, but in our families, in our individual lives for the glory of God. Father, I pray specifically here this morning for those that are coming in and they don't believe a word of what I just finished preaching from your word. God, I pray that this would start them on a journey to seek to know if this word is true. God, if this word is true, it is, makes all the difference in the world. It's life and death. So God, I pray right now you'd spark in them just a, a, a stirring to at least want to explore and know if what this is claiming is actually true. God, would you bring them along that path? And ultimately, I pray you'd bring them to the place where they'd see clearly the reality of Jesus Christ through his word. God, I pray for those in here that are here today and they've lost the wonder of the word of God. And intellectually, they believe it, but they just have lost the wonder of what it is. God, I pray you stir in that again. And stir, stir in them in that way again. And God, I pray you'd help them see the glory of who you are through your word, that when they read your word, God, it wouldn't just be a history textbook. It would be an encounter with you, the living God. And God, I pray for those who are already fired up about your word. God, I pray this would just solidify in their hearts the deep truth that your word is true and reliable. And God, you'd spur them on, not just to know it, but to share it, to disciple other people in it and share it with unbelievers. God, ultimately, I pray that every one of us would move from belief, a superficial belief, to a deep conviction for our lives will change when we're convinced of the word of God. Please help us in this, God. Thank you so much for preserving your word, for giving us all these externals. We're not that smart of a people. We need all these confirmations. Thank you for loving enough to give us everything we need that we can stand firmly on the word of God without apology. Even in 2016, when everybody else refutes, we can stand and say, no, this is God's word. Strengthen us, help us, Grant us your grace, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. For more information, please visit our website, harvestniagara.ca.